0: That's a pen method.
1: fans and welcome to shut up and wrestle an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories i am your host brian r solomon and we have reached the 25th episode the 25th episode of shut up and wrestle a bit of a milestone here i'm kind of proud of been doing this since february and to commemorate this special 25th episode i have a very good Long-time friend of mine and somebody who is one of the true raconteurs of this business and just a great, great conversation to have at all times, Mr. Evan Ginsberg, who we will get to in just a moment. But before we get to Evan, let me talk to you about a couple of quick things, one being what I'm holding in my hand right now, which is... The brand new, well, I mean, I guess new in the United States, they always get it quicker in the UK, but the uh, issue number 22, the the July, 2022 issue of inside the ropes wrestling magazine from over in the United kingdom. It's got Roman reigns on the cover. You may have heard of him. I have a story in this article, which is sort of like a a WWE uh, year in review, not a story in this article, a story in this issue, rather it's a WWE year in review in which I kind of break down the entire WWE roster, who's hot, who's not, who's somewhere in the middle, that kind of thing. Uh, If that is your bag, then please check out the July, 2022 issue of Inside the Ropes, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. Also want to mention for people that are looking to uh, maybe connect with me and maybe get a signed copy of, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, my biography of the Sheik, Ed Farhat. I'm going to be doing a couple of book signings coming up uh, next month, actually, but it'll be here before you know it. I mentioned this last week, but just a little reminder, on Saturday, August 20th, for those in the area, I will be at WrestleBash 22, which is going to be in Parsippany, New Jersey. It's a one-day fan fest. They have a star-studded lineup of people there. In fact, I'm probably the least famous person that's going to be there. But if you want to come down and, and maybe get a signed copy of Blood and Fire, please do uh, just check them out. Uh, if you Google Wrestle Bash 22, you will find it. It's put on by my good friends at the Asylum Wrestling Store. And then the following weekend, because, you know, I have to keep busy in the summer, the weekend of August 26th, that, that whole weekend, I will be in Albany, New York, at the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the second annual awards banquet and Hall of Fame weekend. Uh, This time, I'm going to be having uh, a vendor table there, selling copies again, signed copies of Blood and Fire. But I'll be there the whole weekend, and I encourage you to come. The IPWHF is a terrific organization, and they're really doing some amazing stuff, and I encourage you to check them out. Uh, in the meantime, I encourage you to check this conversation out that I just recently had with Mr. Evan Ginsberg. Evan, for those of you that, that probably know him, is the was the associate producer of Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. Um, but I, I want to tell you something. I first got to know Evan probably about eight years ago, I want to say. I was a part of a show in New York City called Kevin Geeks Out About Wrestling, put on by my really good friend Kevin Marr. It was kind of... Um, Uh, a clip show, kind of a comedy clip show focused on pro wrestling and various aspects of the business. And I'll never forget the first time we did it. I did this whole kind of mini one man show about my experiences working for WWE. Uh, It was a huge success. And in the audience that night, unbeknownst to me, was Evan. And he introduced himself, I think, after the show. And, you know, I was a big fan of the movie The Wrestler. And I was a little bit starstruck. And since that time, Evan has been just a great, great friend. He's had me on his various shows many a time. And so I thought it was about time uh, that I returned the favor. So we had this uh, fantastic conversation that kind of goes all over the place. Evan's been a wrestling fan since the early 70s. Big WWF guy and really knows his stuff and and just um, passionate about Uh, wrestling and particularly the wrestling that he grew up with. So I'd like to uh, share that conversation that we had, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay. So right now I would like to welcome someone to shut up and wrestle that I have been proud to call my friend, not just my colleague, but my friend for at least, I want to say 10 years now, probably more. Um, He, I, I mean, I would have to say most of you guys may know him from, and even people outside the world of pro wrestling would know him as the associate producer of Darren Aronofsky's movie, The Wrestler, which we'll definitely talk about and even appears on screen in the movie. He's also the associate producer of a documentary that I guarantee a lot of listeners to this show have seen, which is 350 Days back in the day actually when I first discovered his name was thanks to the famous wrestling fanzine wrestling then and now that was his baby so um, and these days of course he's the senior editor of pro wrestling stories that's a website out of the UK so you can you can check him out there as well as you know he's done so many interview shows and YouTube shows he's kind of like the Johnny Carson of wrestling. (laughs) He did Legends TV on YouTube, which I was proud to be a guest on a number of times. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome him. And and as you're going to discover in a moment, he is like myself, a native New Yorker. I would like to welcome Mr. Evan Ginsberg to Shut Up and Wrestle.
0: Uh, Thanks so much, Brian. And you can tell by my Brooklyn accent that yes, I am a New Yorker. I
1: I love it. I love
0: love it. I New Yorker. Yeah.
1: See, see, I want to point out that I because ever since I've been doing this show, I always thought, well, I lost almost my whole accent when I moved to Connecticut 20 years ago. And every now and then I'll get people going, uh, oh, Solomon's got this like New York accent. And I'm going, I don't know. I mean, if if I hadn't left New York before I came to Connecticut, I had the same accent as you. So I lost that authenticity that you still have, Evan.
0: When I go to California on vacation or go to England, my cousin's from England. Immediately, people go, you're from New York. You're from New York. Yeah.
1: So you got to wear it like a badge of honor. That's how I, I look at it.
0: It's a survival. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Right. So, you know, and I wanted to say, too, actually, because I mentioned, um how you had the fanzine, how you had wrestling then and now. Uh, What Was that like late 90s kind of era? I
0: I started approximately 1990, 91, the end of 1990. It went for about 20 years and the internet pretty much killed it. So uh, I, I didn't have the tech savvy to make that transition like some people did.
1: Well, I used to love some of those newsletters and fanzines that came around in that era in the 90s and even the early 2000s before the Internet totally, you know, wiped it all out. When I worked at WWE, we would have a a certain select group of fanzines that we actually had subscriptions to there that we would read. And uh, one was Wrestling Perspective, which was just brilliant. If you remember those yeah, guys, yeah, yeah. that was awesome. Another one was uh, Wrestling As We Liked It. And the other one was yours, Wrestling Then and Now. We, really? Yeah, we did. We had it. it was, it's right. I mean, I took them all with me when I left, but we had them there in Titan Tower, just so you know.
0: Wow. And, and not all of what I said about WWE was complimentary. So that's interesting.
1: We didn't care. We didn't care. That was a funny thing when I worked there. I don't think that people realized how disconnected we were, the, our department, publications from the rest of the company, mm-hmm. because they would try to like catch us, thinking they were going to get us in trouble for having things like that. Like I remember one time um, when I was writing my book there, WWE Legends, I wanted to interview Gary Michael Capetta the ring announcer, you know, because I figured he'd have a lot of great stories you know, from the era that I was going to focus on. And I called him up. I actually called him up. I hope he's listening to this because I'd love to have him as a guest. And he was flabbergasted because, you know, he's been very outspoken over the years against the WWF and WWE since the time he left. And I told him what an admirer I was of his book and how I wanted to talk to him. And the first thing he would say to me was, does Vince know that you're calling me? Does I don't understand. Does you know, uh, and 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 I had to explain to him, look, I'm you know, we just do our own thing here. If we get in trouble, we get in trouble. But we did stuff like that. We we really didn't care. We just threw caution to the wind. I did an interview with Randy Savage, when, you know, when he was gone from the company and nobody would talk to him. I did an interview for Smackdown magazine with him.
0: Mm.
1: But I wanted to say that, uh, you know what? I didn't mention in the introduction. I wanted to say it and I forgot. But a very important Piece of the puzzle to me. I have a lot of people on the show that more than anything else, uh, they're the most important thing is they have been lifelong fans of wrestling from when they were very young people. And your love of wrestling, I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, goes back something like 50 years, right?
0: That was exactly 50 years. I started watching in 1972. I'm 103 years old, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I started attending in '74. The first match I ever saw live was Nikolai and Fred Blassie against Bruno and Strongbow at the Garden, June 24, 1974. The day is etched in my brain forever. And I'll tell you what happened. I walked into the Garden with my dad, and I looked around, and the first thought that entered my head was, wow, it's in color. (laughs) Because we had a black and white TV set. Right that's how way back this goes and I was a kid and it's in color you know it was wild and um that that day I should say that evening uh the Valiant Brothers wrestled Dean Ho and Tony Gurria and um you know Kowalski was there and Haystack's Calhoun I mean it was magic it was like Marvel superheroes and villains come to life you know for a kid Uh Johnny Valiant, who later became my friend, ironically, Johnny Valiant used to say to me, When you're in a wrestling ring, you're 10 feet tall. And to a kid, you're 20 feet tall. I mean, you know, so it was magic. And my dad started to take me every month. And back then the garden was the A circuit and the Nassau Coliseum was the B circuit. And then we had the Westchester County Center and Sunnyside Gardens which was much smaller venues. That was like the C circuit. You could literally go every week to, to a match dirt cheap and see some of the greatest legends in history. So I, I was just hooked as a kid. And, uh, you know, and it was a different era. We, we were, for the most part, blue collar monks. Hmm. The adults also, there was, there was no internet. Uh, the sheets were absolutely primitive in the 70s. There was very little insider stuff. Was mostly clippings and results. And um, so, you know, we, as a kid, we didn't even know it was a work. Mm -hmm. And and the way we discovered it is kind of interesting. We'd wait for autographs. We'd wait for autographs outside the garden. So I'm a kid. That
1: back door, right? I remember that back door. That back
0: door that clearly was labeled seven feet tall, And Andre did not have to duck to walk through that door (laughs) because he was about six foot ten. Right. And Andre would never sign for us kids. And Dusty would never sign for us kids. And superstar Billy Graham would and Lou Albano would and the Grand Wizard would. And there's George Steele chatting with us. He wasn't mute. He wasn't insane. (laughs) he was having a perfectly intelligent conversation and as a kid you started to put the pieces together wait a second some of these good guys aren't nice and some of these bad guys are you know and yeah yeah it was it was a different way of you know figuring out the business but uh that was part of the experience waiting with your dad outside the garden for autographs and it was magic bruno would sign for everybody and he'd shake your hand and it was so powerful. It was like hours later, you could like feel, you know, the, the shake and you didn't want to wash your hand because he was like a half God to us. And it was magic, man, the 70s, WWWL, magic.
1: And, you know, it's funny you talk about, cause I've heard this from so many people that the, the heels the bad guys tended to be nicer to the fans away from the ring than the good guys. I always wondered, why was that? I mean, the only thing I could think of is maybe because they were so used to people hating them and booing them and spitting at them that when they were away from it, they they wanted maybe people to be nice to them. I mean, what, what other reason could there be well, for that to happen?
0: Well, um, Johnny Valiant used to call the ring his stage like an actor. And if he could get you to boo you, if he could get you to boo him. That was his triumph. That was his success. And he was happy. He was happy. It was a little different. You know, Nikolai used to tell me the heat was so bad that him and the Iron Sheik would have to leave in an ambulance in the middle of the card to avoid the fans because, you know, they had agitated them to such a point. But for the most part, the uh, heels you know, Billy Graham would just stand out there and sign and, and, and these guys were larger than life. So uh, yeah, you know, this was, this was who they are. They were nice guys who were putting on a performance.
1: And you've said this when we've talked other times, something that's always struck me and you, you hinted at it just before about how, and I find this to be so true, really like at the heart of being a wrestling fan, what it comes down to for so many people, is it's the bond between a kid and a parent, you know, a son and a father, or even a daughter and a father, whatever it is, your dad, and it's usually the dad, (laughs) your dad takes you to wrestling when you're a kid. And it's like that experience. I've had it now. I've had it with my dad and my grandfather, I should say, my grandfather took me to my first WWF show in in the eighties, a lot later than yours, but with my grandfather, and now I do it with my I've done it with my kids. I have two grown kids now and my son, who's five. I'm just starting to take him. I'm actually taking him, you know, this month as we're recording this in July to a show at Webster Bank Arena here in Bridgeport. But it's like that really is how it all begins. It's, it's like that bonding with your parent.
0: Absolutely. And what happens is uh, my father died in 1980. And uh, I remember the first couple of cards, he didn't go with me, you know, too. And, and it really felt like a, a big void, you know. Um, and you'd sit there and go, Dad would have loved this. Mm. Loved this. And, uh, and when you look back, you say, these were some of the best nights of my life because your father's gone and you only wish you had another... Such night, whether it was wrestling or the Knicks or you know whatever the case may be, and um, yeah, and when you talk to uh, old school fans, they'll say the same thing. My uncle took me, my aunt took me, my grandparents. Well, you know, it doesn't even have to be your dad, but and and now they're gone. You know, it's decades later, and you realize you know those nights were really special, and uh, you know you're experience you're experiencing. You know this incredible incredible, exciting you know event, and um you know you're sharing it together, so yeah that's a big that's a very big part of it and i I did a piece recently for Pro Wrestling Stories, where I was watching an old garden card on cable, and um I'm looking at it and I'm going. There's Georgie Ann Macropolis from the Wrestling Chatterbox. She was my friend. She's gone now, you know. And then I'm looking at the matches, and I'm like, they're all gone. Everybody in this match, you know, George Steele, Bruno, you know, Andre, Ernie Ladd, whoever. I'm like, they're all gone.
1: Even the referee, you know. The
0: referee, the announcers, the
1: announcers, right?
0: Heenan and, and you know whomever, um, and. So you you start to say, wow, this is just an image on on a screen. They're all gone. But the beauty of it is it's a a piece of immortality. They're going to entertain people forever. A hundred years from now, people will watch those matches. A hundred years from now, people will watch The Wrestler with Mickey Hawk. They'll Mm -hmm. watch it. And and it's a little piece of immortality. And it's, uh, I I think that's why, that's why I I want to create art. I want to see wrestling promoters create art. Cody Rhodes and Seth Rollins was art. Much of what WWE presents is crap. So, so, you know, uh, it's a choice. It's a choice. You can make the wrestler. Or you can make the Marine Seven. It's a
1: choice. <laughs> You're right. You know, I, and I agree with a lot of that. Of how, especially now, um, every now and then something will happen where it's still they recapture a little bit of that of that magic. And I'm not sure if you were, if you were talking about the Cody. And Rollins match from WrestleMania or the one they just did a hell in the cell work. I
0: thought, I thought all three matches were excellent, but the yeah. last one was just dramatic.
1: Yes. I, I, I really well. feel like, like he made himself, you want to talk about immortal. He made himself immortal that night. They're going to be talking about that forever. What he did yeah. with, with the torn peck and the black and blue all down his side. I mean, that's what that's, those are the moments that last in wrestling to me, Well, you know, past and present.
0: And um, that will hold up as a great match 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Sometimes the fans upset me. They'll say, all that wrestling in the 70s was boring. They're just punching and kicking. They don't don't get it because they they didn't have the mindset of a blue-collar audience that believed. That believed. When Bruno got punched or kicked, we felt it. When Pedro got got beaten down, we felt it. And these guys are always big, monstrous, super heavyweights. That's the way McMahon senior booked the territory. So you you know, when Akira Kowalski is pounding on Bruno, that's his equal, you know. And as Marks, you know, we we thought the heel had a chance to win that belt, you know. So. And then finally, Ivan Koloff beat Bruno and Billy Graham beat Bruno. And then you always have that. Well, you know, sometimes, right. sometimes these guys do lose. So it's a different, it's a different mindset. And one other thing that people really don't realize 50 years after the fact, my father was a World War II veteran. He was shot on the battlefield, you know, and there's Waldo Von Erich, and, you know, and there's these Nazi villains and, you know, these guys generated unbelievable heat. This this was the perfect audience to them. Today yeah. they, they looked at as characters. They wouldn't have that same heat.
1: And that, you're right. And that's something I came across when I was doing the chic book because I had to come to the conclusion at the end that as great as he was, you'd never be able to pull off a character like that today. And I don't, I'm not even talking about political correctness and worrying about offending people that would be an issue but the bigger thing for me is that people just would not buy into it in the same way he would be you know almost like a comedy act if they tried to do it today because the fans are just programmed a certain way to not take it seriously but the thing that makes me nuts too is like you were talking about waldo von eric and how you know, you've have guys like that, that their gimmick was that they were Nazis or they were, you know, German or whatever it is.
0: Baron von Raschke. Right, Baron
1: von Raschke or, or Fritz von Erich before he, you know, went babyface. But you would have an audience back then where there were a lot of World War II vets in the audience or watching on TV. It's yeah. only that,
0: 20 years after the fact.
1: Right, and these were people that actually fought the real Nazis. So yeah. it's, it's always amusing to me that that fan base and that audience was more willing to accept that than an audience of today, which almost has no living connection to the Nazis.
0: Exactly.
1: Isn't that weird though? They almost take more of a deep offense than the fans watching, who actually fought real Nazis. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, the 1960s were 20 years after the fact. The 1970s were 30 years after the fact. A lot of those guys were, were World War II veterans. My father, my father, freed a concentration camp. He did the clerical to free a concentration camp. I have a drawing of him from one of the prisoners. And he used to say to me, you know, when I was a kid, they were human skeletons. They were human skeletons. I mean, you know, this is my, my, he had PTSD. He would wake up screaming, my father. He was shot. So, you know, you're sitting there and there's Walter Von Erich and Baron Von Rasky goose-stepping. You're not going to react well to it, you know?
1: No, I I had I had an uncle, my my grandmother's brother who went in you know he was in the European theater, he he marched to Berlin, the whole thing. He was in the Battle of the Bulge, Normandy invasion. He liberated a, a concentration camp. He was one of those soldiers where they would they would get the villagers from the local village and they would walk them through the camp and show them everything so that none of them could ever say that they didn't see it and that it didn't happen or whatever. And I'll tell you, I mean, obviously, I didn't know him before he went into the service. And he was a very young man at 19, 20, 21. And everybody, everybody who did know him, they always said he was never the same after. He was a much more introverted, um, prickly, hard to get along with, not, not as friendly, not as easygoing, not as happy. Like he, he lost a part of himself, a piece of himself that just just died doing that, I think.
0: The way we're talking right now, my father was talking to one of his buddies. He was in a, uh, they were in a tent in Arizona. They were training before they went over to Germany. And um, the metal thing that holds up the tent, I don't know what you call it, that big um, metal piece that I'm 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 from Brooklyn. I don't know camping, but that metal piece that holds up the uh, tent as my father's talking to him, lightning hits that metal piece, the guy dies mid-sentence in a, a conversation with my father. A kid, you know, 21, 22, right. young soldier. Yeah, so, they
1: they saw things that they would never oh, even talk about, you know, oh, after the fact. Yeah, Definitely.
0: So, so um
1: but it's but it's a working class thing, like you said. And and I think, as we all know, that's something that's changed so much about wrestling fans is back in the day, the stereotype even of the wrestling fan was that he was a working class guy. He came home from his, you know, like union job, whatever it was. He was an he was an older guy, a middle class guy. A, I mean, a working class guy with a beer and a cigar sitting in front of the TV, watching wrestling or going to the, uh, you know, going live to see it. And then I guess, of course, you know, in the 80s with Hulkamania and and marketing towards kids, it started to change. And now when you look at the audience, it's it's it couldn't be more different than that. The demographic is so completely different of wrestling fans than what it used to be back then.
0: Well, when you have five thousand dollar WrestleMania packages or five thousand dollar theme belts, and people are buying this like money is not an object, um, it's certainly a different audience. I remember when I started going to the Garden, tickets were three to six dollars, and the crowd was upset when they raised it <laughs> four to seven because money was an issue. Yeah. My father never broke twenty five grand driving a, a taxi in New York. So uh, it it was a different, whole different thing now. When you go to Madison Square Garden and uh, ringside tickets are $154 and VIP packages are $599, this is not the same, you know, blue collar. You know, my grandfather was a butcher. He used to take my mom to wrestling in the 50s. Mm. So it's in my genes, you know, it's part of my genetics. My mother used to marvel. That I was friends with Killer Kowalski because the he was the most evil guy in the world because right. that's how she saw him in the fifties, you know.
1: Yeah, so. yeah, and 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 really, I mean, going to see it live and following it, there was um, it just was such a different that there was more suspension of disbelief, obviously, even if people knew in their heart that you know maybe this is just a show they were willing to let that go for two or three hours and just enjoy themselves and you feel i feel like the the audience is now they want to be a part of the show more than anything else they want to take it over they want to be a character they want to influence the way that the angles go and that kind of thing and there's an there's an innocence that's gone in a weird way
0: well i think it's crossed over to obsessiveness i mean The guy that's watched 5,000 shoot interviews, maybe he should try watching a good movie one night instead. You know, it's like, I I get the sense that some of these people, they get their self-identity from how smart they are. Um, And sometimes, I'll give you an example. I'm online uh, yesterday, in fact, and there's a thread on one of the wrestling pages who should be let go? Which wrestlers should be let go, okay? Like like they're just characters on the screen to entertain them. They're not real people with families and kids and bills. And, and there's hundreds of comments. Oh, you should get rid of her. She can't work. You should get rid of him. You know, he's too fat. He's too skinny. You know, the, the Vince uh, body beautiful fetish has, you know, taken over the fandom also this guy doesn't look this guy doesn't look like a wrestler what, what does that mean i grew up on dusty Rhodes, pat patterson ray stevens adrian adonis even holly race had a beer belly mm-hmm. what's the difference these 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 guys have more great matches in a month than, than some of the wrestlers today have had in their entire careers I mean, why do you need a six pack of abs to be a great wrestler? And I'm not in bad shape saying this, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It, I,
1: I, yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and when you talk about, um, I think you really hit on something when you, cause I've thought this, when you talk about how you've got a lot of fans now that their identity is being a wrestling fan, which, yeah. which on the surface You know, it doesn't sound like there's anything wrong with that. And I mean, you can be passionate about stuff, but but that's another thing that's changed where um, the entire it's much more of a niche kind of a thing now where it has this fan base that watches it, that that's all they do. They're just obsessed with wrestling. And I know people listening to this are going to kill me for saying this. I'm not I'm not going to listen to your show anymore. You don't like wrestling fans, but but it's a very different thing. You no longer have, and especially when you look at an audience at a show, you could tell looking at them that these are the people that eat, sleep, and breathe wrestling. They all have t-shirts on. They all have merch on, wrestling merch. They know like the ins and outs of every angle, whereas the crowds would be a lot more mixed back in the day. You would have people that just spur the moment spontaneously because walk up business was a big thing. You could just walk up to the garden box office on the day of the show and say, Hey, you know what? i got nothing to do today. Let's just see the wrestling. And you might not even know everyone who's on the card. You might not have even heard a half of them, but you just want to go and just enjoy a little bit of wrestling casually. You might get couples on dates, uh, little old ladies, like we're saying a parent with their kids, just uh, some people that look like they just took them off a park bench and let them in the garden, you know, but that that kind of attitude of like, hey, let's just go watch some wrestling. That's that's very different from today, with the people that they like, they they passionately hold on to this identity. That's what I am. I'm a wrestling fan. But you know?
0: see, passion is a good thing. Obsession, yes. When I hear people say, "I hate this wrestler," hate. I mean, you've crossed the line into upset obsession. I'm sorry. When when they do things like. And don't get me wrong, because some of my closest friends—I love some of my friends I've met through wrestling. Seriously, me I've too. met some awesome people through wrestling, so I'm not making a blanket statement. But when I see comments like, "Oh, um, they're they're, j- they're just um, you know sitting there eating Vince's food, <laughs> and and they haven't been on TV in months," you, you know, know. So I'm like, "Why, why?" Why are you worried about Vince's food bill? I he's, mean,
1: I he's mean, gonna he's, be okay he's gonna yeah, be okay,
0: okay. He could afford <laughs> he could afford the buffet for the wrestlers I mean you right
1: know. but you see that's another thing that but again, and not I'm gonna get all you know sociological here, but that's the change away from the working class fan because the working class fan is not going to identify with management. the working <laughs> class fan is a working class guy, he's going to identify with the workers. He, he's not going to take the boss's side. It's a very different way uh, of thinking, you know?
0: Well, the corporate apologist thing is a whole different issue. Um, when, when people, you know, pick any one of seven ruthless things Vince has done or allegedly done, and when when people go, oh, they all do it. no, no. There, there there are some corporations that really, you know, are not ruthless. And most certain... are. Most yeah. are. Many are. But you can't say they all do it. You can't right. e jerk excuse for everything. And, and another thing that I found a little disturbing a week or two ago, there's Tony Khan from AEW. He's hugging Cesaro. And all these fans are mocking him. Like, like, Like goodness is weakness. Right. and ruthlessness is strength since when did the wrestling fans go corporate like this
1: no you're, you're right and I, and that 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 bothered me too especially you know i had to make a joke about it i made a kind of a dark joke but when all the stuff was coming out recently about vince and the things that he's been doing with talent and that sort of thing i said something like well at least he's not hugging them right <laughs>
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: you know because it's like uh there it seems like that mentality that you're saying has really taken root of worshiping strength and ruthlessness and almost like a fascist <laughs> sort of ideology for for being a fan but somebody posted something that really struck me and it speaks to this and i really think there's some truth to this that the older fans like maybe fans my age or even more your age they, they always kind of demonized Vince because he kind of killed a lot of the wrestling that they loved in a lot of ways. He changed it. He turned it into something else, and they hated that. But now you've got younger fans now from a younger generation. They love Vince because he created the wrestling that they love and that they watched, and, and he made it what it is. So it's like two weird sides of a coin. It, you know, he's being hated and loved almost for the same things.
0: Well, the transition period in the mid 80s, I love Piper. I love the Slaughter and the Sheik, um, Bob Orton Jr. I mean, th- these were tremendous, tremendous. Snooker, of course. Morocco. Who was better than Morocco?
1: Right. Steamboat.
0: I mean, yeah, Steamboat, of course. So, you know, it's just he took it too far where all of a sudden Dick Slade is a cartoon, and Terry Funk is more cartoonish, and Holly Race is wearing a crown, and you know not everybody needed to be a cartoon. He took it too far, too far, yeah. And um, that's what we resented. But um, you know, Bret Hart was great, and um, Shawn Michaels was certainly great. You know, what another thing I don't quite understand is the AEW versus WWE. You have what? Well, you have to be on one team and the other's the enemy. I pick and choose WWE, any given pay-per-view, you're going to see some good wrestling. I think much of their TV is awful, but the pay-per-views are good.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also because they do less of them when you're doing, you know, but, but that's true. I have to say every single, not to get too much into modern wrestling, but every single AEW pay-per-view is a home run to me. It's like, it's like uh Great matches. It all like like you said. Sometimes a lot of the buildup is sloppy and and erratic. But when, once it gets to the show, man, they deliver every time. And and you know even, don't
0: even WWE on any given pay per view you'll have you'll have your two or three good, very good or excellent matches. Right. So you can't just dismiss all of it either. You know, and being a quote unquote journalist or a wrestling journalist or whatnot, you know. You're really supposed to call it down the line.
1: Yeah, and again, it's a corporate thing. They have, and I want to say, especially in the last 20 years, since the whole brand extension and since they started really dominating the industry completely, meaning WWE, they created this mentality of, you're no longer a wrestling fan. You're no longer the fan of an industry or a sport, as we used to call it without blinking, right? WWE fan. You're a fan of a brand, right? Yeah. You're a fan of a product of one company. So these, these newer fans, they can't comprehend the way that we often watched wrestling, which is the same way you'd watch. Any other sport that has different, you know, uh, people that make it or different leagues or whatever, you're a fan of that sport. You're not just a fan of one group. And that's something that I think has hurt wrestling and it's hurt wrestling fandom that people have this weird sense of loyalty. Yeah. And I don't know why. I mean, I know a lot of times these and, and this is not just WWE thing. Corporations have learned to kiss the asses of consumers. They've learned how to do it very well and that, that creates consumer loyalty. But you have to see through it sometimes, I think.
0: Another thing is years ago, Shane McMahon did an interview where he said, we don't really want somebody bigger than the WWE like Hogan was or The Rock was, where if they walk away, it hurts us. We want people to come for the WWE experience. He's and what rocks. I And what I'm finding now, which as an old school fan, I totally disagree with, at the very last second, you could go to a Madison Square Garden house show or whatnot, and they'll just change the main event on a whim. I'm like, well, wasn't the other match what people paid to see? How do you just change it, you know, without saying anything? And uh...
1: That's been an ongoing process for them. And when Shane said that, he was re- really reflecting the company philosophy yeah. Part of it is, you know, part of it is they got sick of dealing and this is devil's advocate, but part of it is they got sick of dealing with talent whose heads would get really big and they would become egomaniacal and they would start to think that I I really won these matches. I really won these titles. I'm, I'm bigger than the company. They got sick of having to deal with that. So they wanted people to just come for the brand. I'm going to see WWE. And they more or less have created that because, you know, the last gasp was Cena, I think of where you'd have a guy that could make a difference, whether or not he was on a show in terms of ticket sales. I think Roman Reigns is kind of in that range right now, but it doesn't happen often. And they try to really rein it in. They don't, they don't like having that. I started noticing it and maybe you did too, when, they stopped even putting the cards in the programs. You didn't even know sometimes right. what matches you were going to see. You know, I remember I, this happened maybe by about the end of the 90s. I noticed it because I would go to a lot of Nassau shows and garden shows and things. And I remember the first time I noticed it, I'd be like, well, where are the matches? Who, who, who's wrestling? Yeah. And I think it might have been a TV taping. It might have been a Raw. And, of course, why? Well, they were booking it up until five seconds before it went on the air. you know
0: and and basically, it's like you're gonna take what we give you and, and you're gonna like it. that's um we don't we don't care if you if you don't like this is this is what we're giving you, and that's what you're gonna get tonight
1: right. I think it's it's funny in a way because um you know we're, we're friends online and um I, I you're 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 a fascinating guy because you usually with the, with thing when it comes to movies and music and things you'll call me out whenever i sound like a grump and i talk about how everything sucks now and everything used to be better then and you'll point out very valid points of why i should broaden my horizons and seek out current new things and current things but i always find that you draw the line at pro wrestling. You're very much willing to say for sure that pro wrestling used to be a lot better before than it is now. Right. Uh, Wouldn't you say?
0: Yes. But at the same time, I'm not one of those dinosaurs who go, there was no, there's no (laughs) good wrestling since the territories. Right. I mean, Okada and uh, Kenny Omega, that's art. That's art uh yeah. nigel McGuinness and brian
1: danielson brian
0: danielson right i was just watching um um McGuinness's uh doc- documentary and um he deals with some of that and brian danielson and um and uh nigel mcginnis it was like flair and steamboat dory funk jack briscoe you know 20 30 years later it was just incredible so you know, I love New Japan. I always love Ring of Honor, um, AEW. Some, some small portion of what WWE puts out. But um, nah, I, so what did I prefer seeing Roddy Piper at his peak as a heel? Yes. <laughs> did I prefer Ric Flair in his prime? Yes. But um, there's, a, there's plenty of great wrestling today. In fact, it, I think it's a golden age today because you, you can watch wrestling 24-7. I mean, there's so much of it, plus YouTube, plus, you know, WWE on Peacock. There's endless, endless content that you could cherry pick and watch what you enjoy, like a buffet. That's so,
1: true. Yeah. If you told me when I was a kid that I would be able to just at the press of a button, watch all of this classic wrestling and that I wanted, I could just hit a button and be able to watch, you know, Starcade 83, Ric Flair and Harley race in a cage. Something that, in, you know, when I was a kid, I would have to hunt down an old videotape. I would have to figure out which video store had it and find it and, and you know,
0: and try to dub it
1: right and i did believe me i've talked about that on here before i used to dub everything but i mean but it is it's like a lot of it is like a dream come true i think for example um women's wrestling i don't think there's even any argument to be made against the fact that the last five to ten years has been the greatest period ever for women's wrestling i mean in terms of in america i would say because in japan they were way ahead of us on that but in terms of match quality, in terms of the talent of the performers, where it's not, I hate to say, where it's not just cat fighting and things like that, in terms of opportunities for young women that want to get into it, things that they could do other than just having to stand at ringside, you know, half naked. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it, it, that has definitely improved, no question oh, about
0: absolutely. it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Asaka's great and Charlotte Flair and, uh, Bianca and you know Britt Britt Baker. I mean they're tremendous, tremendous Natalia, but um one thing I think they should tone down, um sometimes the outfits and the hair, it's like 37 different gaudy colors on both of the performers or four if it's tech it's almost distracting, you know. It's yeah. it, it's like almost blinding. It's like it's like um, you know. I I think
1: they might want to tone it down a little, you know? Yeah. you know, it's funny. I'll watch, it's become a running gag on this show. I'll talk about my wife's reaction to watching wrestling with me, but you know, that's one of the things she always says when, when we watch the women's matches is she'll go, I don't know how, because my wife is also a big MMA fan, and, and, you know, she loves to watch the women in that too. And she'll watch wrestling and go, I don't know how they do it in all that, crap all over them with their hair you know because usually if you're in a in a mma fight you got your hair tied back you don't want your hair in your face
0: so distracting her all. right
1: your hair everywhere you got to do all your makeup you've got all these gaudy things all over your outfit
0: face paint it's yeah. almost
1: like it's a, it's kind of like what they would always say about you know the whole like fred astaire ginger rogers thing that she had to do Everything that Fred Astaire had to do, but you had to do it backwards, wearing high heels right. and, and also wearing like a, a, a ball gown and yeah, having yeah. all this makeup on. There is something to be said for that. I mean, they're, they're probably not doing that by choice. I mean, that isn't in the business. That's just you just it's all about appearance. So that's another challenge for what they do, for sure.
0: What we were saying before is interesting. Sasha Banks walks off. And it almost doesn't matter. There's Bianca. She's younger. As good, if not better, you know, charismatic and, you know, no, no piece of the machine is indispensable anymore. People go to see the WWE.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, and that whole thing that I mentioned before about how, you know, making the brand bigger than any star. You know, I've heard that and when I worked there, I used to hear it. I, I did an interview once with Vince himself for one of my books where I had this godsend moment of getting like a couple hours alone with him. talk to him and about things like this. And he said that to me point blank. He he actually even said to me that one of the things that made his father want to retire early. I mean, other than the fact that I think he was in very poor health was that he got sick of dealing with talent and and fighting with them and and arguing with them and trying to please them and the politics of everything of, you know, Bruno's going to walk out on me. Superstar Graham is pissed that we took the belt off of him you know, uh, all these kind of things that you'd have to deal with. And 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 he just got tired of it and didn't want to do it anymore, that it just takes a toll on you. And that was one of the things that that and, and he was specific about saying we wanted we didn't want people to get bigger than the company. I think that's very true
0: absolutely i mean shane said it publicly it's, yeah it's there,
1: it? but another thing i want to mention too because i want to i want there's so many things that i like talking about i didn't want to talk a ton about the wrestler only because i'm sure you've got to be sick of talking about it i imagine it's probably the first thing anybody wants to ask you about
0: but uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it whatever you want to ask you know?
1: well well i wanted to say and I've, i think i've told you this story before and i think but I'm mentioning it now for the record, but because I think you had a connection to it now when they were filming, when Darren Aronofsky was starting pre-production on the wrestler before Mickey Rourke had the part of, of uh, the main character, the Ram, it was Nicholas cage. I don't know if everybody knows that now, Nicholas cage, Nicholas cage was the original choice for that part. And I happened to be at a Ring of Honor show that they had at the Manhattan Center. Uh, I wanna say it was summer of 07, like right before filming started. And it was the one where they had uh, Mitsuhara Masawa in the main event. I forget who he was wrestling that night, but I'm sitting in the VIP box because I knew somebody at Ring of Honor that used to work at WWE and he got me my seat. I'm sitting there and I think I was with my sister. And I'm looking a couple rows ahead and I go, is that Nicolas Cage? And at the time, I didn't know what Darren Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky looked like. But it's Nicolas Cage and Darren Aronofsky taking their seats like two rows ahead in the VIP section at the Manhattan Center. Basically, I guess, doing research and and just getting. I'll
0: tell you. I'll tell you that whole story. Yeah,
1: I know you have a story about that.
0: Yeah. um, Darren says to me, Evan, you're the point man. We're going to pick up Nicolas Cage in the uh, garage underneath the Manhattan Center. I want you to get him into the building without any paparazzi. No big deal. And I knew all the Ring of Ring of Honor guys, and um, so I I basically meet up with them. And um, at the time, he was a major, major movie star. You know, uh, this was two thousand seven, like you said. And uh, for like 30 seconds, I like mark out. And then I just happened to notice his shoes are like uh, no better than my shoes. And he's just another guy. And he's very warm and friendly. And this is what you realize with celebrities. They're people, just like famous wrestlers. So I whisk him backstage. And um, the first thing he says to me, he goes, is this real like UFC? And I wow. go, no, I go, no. It's just, <laughs> these guys are really good. It's convincing, you know? And the guy couldn't be any nicer. He's taking pictures. He's posing with the wrestlers. Um, and after the fact, after the fact, Darren says to me, Evan, he goes, goes Nicholas Cage is like a walking corporation. He's got... He's got the hairdresser, he's got the agent, he's got the manager, he's got the personal trainer, he's a great guy, but, you know, Mickey is right for the part, this is mm-hmm. what Darren said to me, Nicholas Cage at the time was 43, 44, he was in great shape, he, he Darren actually said, he looks too healthy, okay, <laughs> that's, that's what Darren said to me, he looks yeah. too healthy, so um so basically Darren went with his heart because he's an artist and he goes, Mickey's the right guy. That's the exact words he said to me. Mickey's the right guy. Not that Nicholas Cage isn't a tremendous actor and also a super guy, you know, and like I said, but um you know Mickey, Mickey's performance. We, we were at the New York Film Festival Lincoln Center. 2,300 people sold out, $40 a ticket. And um, I'm sitting there with my girlfriend, who is now my wife. And um, I'm looking around. And when Mickey Rourke goes, I'm just a broken down piece of meat, everybody's crying. Hmm. The whole audience is crying. And I... I And, you know, we spent seven years off and on doing this. You know, this isn't, you know, a WWE, um, you know, documentary or Dark Side of the Ring where they're pumping them out. We spent seven years off and on on this. And um, at at that moment, I go, wow, it works. It works.
1: Yeah, it does.
0: And... uh, Am I allowed to curse on your show? Please do. Okay. So um, at the rap party, night, nice nightclub in Manhattan, Aronofsky's making a speech. And I'll never forget it. He goes, I don't know what the fuck we have, but we have something. His exact words. I'm not being melodramatic. And um, yeah, man, it, you know, it was... The whole thing was just a great experience, and you know it wasn't the Avengers, it wasn't Spider man, but you know critically, critically, it was a great success and uh, we, we we shot that on six million dollars, which is basically the food budget for the Avengers, okay, <laughs> and you know. I went every weekend for six months, no exaggeration, with uh, Darren, uh, Scott Franklin, the executive producer. He was the money guy. I was the wrestling guy. uh, Scott Franklin made all the deals, the screenwriter, et cetera, so on. I took them to wrestling events every weekend, conventions. Um, That convention scene, I'll tell you where it came from. I took them to a convention in New Jersey one weekend, and it was basically the WWE Hall of Fame. Nikolai, Iron Sheik, Moolah, Mae Young, Lou Albano, et cetera, so on. That whole crew, they were all there, and there was no fans. There Hmm. There was 20 or 30 people. It was dead. Iron Sheik's head was down on the table sleeping. That's how dead it was. And Aronofsky was a good-hearted guy. His mom's a school teacher. He comes from, he's like us. I mean, he, you know, he's a, he's a New York guy. He's not a rich kid, you know. So he's like, Evan, where is everybody? Where is everybody? And the screenwriter was with us. And he wrote that into the script because I saw all five or six versions of that script because I was helping them with whatever wrestling stuff didn't ring true. Basically, these guys were mid-80s, Hulkamania, rock and wrestling era fans. And um, they, um, that's what they knew. So for example, in the first version of the script, Mickey, Randy the Rams, blading himself and everybody's watching at the curtain. I go, Darren, nobody would be watching. It's just another day at the office. Nobody would care. Nobody right. would care. So they, they took that out of the script. Then in the later script, they added that depressing convention scene.
1: And I think you, if I remember, right, that you also had, speaking of Johnny and he's in that scene. Isn't he one of the guys in there yes. at the convention yes. scene?
0: I'll tell you that story real quick. So um, it's written into the script. I'm on set that day. Darren gets the smirk. He goes, Evan, come here. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, I want you to work, work you know, all the wrestlers in the scene walk up to Mickey last, ask him for an autograph and a Polaroid. And Mickey whispers in my ear, he goes, just improv it. I've never acted in my life. It's surreal, the whole thing. So, you know, I do exactly what Darren says. You know, there's Manny Yarborough, UFC, black sumo. 800 pounds. He's one of the uh, guys playing one of the wrestlers. So, yeah, I walk past him. I walk past the other guys. I walk up to Mickey last, and, and I'm thinking the whole time, what am I going to say? Because we're it. So I'm thinking, what would I say to a wrestler I'm a fan of? I go, I loved you as a kid. I saw you at Madison Square Garden. Can I have your autograph? And he looks at me and he goes. What's your name? So so now I go, Evan. Just like reflexively, I go, Evan. And it dawns on me how surreal this is. I'm playing myself in a fictional movie. How utterly surreal this is. So, um, yeah, man. So that little clip is in the trailer, which has been seen by like 4 million people or whatever. So, um, right. Yeah, it was really, uh, the whole experience was, was beautiful. None of us got rich from it, including Mickey. Mickey's real payoff for that movie was, was Iron Man when he played the game. Right,
1: yeah, yeah. He I got million
0: dollars for that Iron Man sequel. And um, that was really the payoff for the wrestler because he was hot again. And then, of course, the expendables and He's been working ever since.
1: Right. It it helped to resurrect his career, like you said. So maybe even if the movie itself, and I don't think did he he didn't win the Oscar, right? I know he was up for he it. He Won the
0: Golden Globe. He
1: won the Golden Globe, right? Best
0: actor internationally, but he lost the Oscar to Sean Penn for Milk.
1: Right. That's right. But it but it but it really reinvigorated his career, and like you said, he I, he wouldn't have gotten Iron Man two without that. I mean, he was he was hot in that moment again he was one of the hot kind of stars again thanks to that movie but i think like w- what grabbed a lot of people what made that movie so special and i could tell you is that i had just come out of working for wwe i was still in contact with a lot of the people from there and that movie was not initially in wide release you really had odd, to work odd, to find it
0: in odd houses. right
1: and it we was, went it
0: rough it was it was bloody it was rough
1: Right. We actually went to I got a a group of guys together, WWE, ex-WWE, you know, my office friends. And we made a pilgrimage to the Lincoln Center Theater. We went there, not on the same, not for the premiere, but we went there and saw it there. And, you know, because this was an important thing because it was a movie. Look, there have been a million wrestling movies. Most of them are goofy and hokey. This was a movie that was going to treat and did treat. The industry and the people in it with respect and care, unflinching, not corporate propaganda. This was a a very unique animal. And I would venture to say there there hasn't been a movie like it since. I mean, I mean, it stands on its own in that way. It's an incredible achievement.
0: Thank you. Um, When I came in, when I came into it, there was an initial script and Mickey was always the guy. Later, later, Nicolas Cage was being considered because we couldn't get the funding off of Mickey's name at the time because his star had descended at that point. Um, But like I said, Darren eventually went with Mickey. Um, And I don't think think you'll find a better performance. I mean, you know, I could be biased, but I always think of it like Brando and On the Waterfront. I could have been a contender. Yes. You know, when, when Mickey goes, I'm just a broken down piece of meat. I always compared it to because, you know, just a beautiful performance. And I said to him after the fact, you know, which is a simple question. I said, what do you think of the movie? And he said, I can't watch it. it, it, it it's too painful. It reminds me of my career. You know, as an actor he, in the 80s, he was huge. He was top box office. He goes into boxing, he's getting punched in the face. This is the last thing an actor should be doing, okay? And, you know, so he's basically a tortured artist and I never saw him say no for a picture, for an autograph, nicest guy in the world, but um, you know, he's got his demons or whatnot, but um, it was a pleasure working with him, that I can tell you.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's easy to see how he would relate to the part i mean like you said it's like a life imitates art did you find that because i i had heard you know i've heard stories over the years that because it was so real and it hit so close to home and it felt so real that there were a lot of wrestlers well i don't want to say a lot but that there were some wrestlers especially the older guys that maybe see themselves in that character that were kind of upset by it. Like, like it, it it hit them a little too close. The
0: only, the only one I heard publicly knock it was Jim Cornette, who I'm a huge fan of, Midnight Express, my all-time favorite tag team. Jim I Cornette. Too. I, I, can't, you know, I, I, I can't quote him exactly, but I'll paraphrase. He's like, you know, we all don't live in trailer parks. You know? <laughs> and I realized that, but let me tell you, over those six months, when I took Darren to different events, you know, I took him to an indie show where there was maybe 20 people, a low-level indie show, and you know, the same reaction. How come nobody's here? You know, these guys are killing themselves in the ring. How come nobody's here? A lot of what we saw was not glamorous, not glamorous, especially. Right. I took them to CZW, Cage of Death, Jeez. and we went backstage. It was like a MASH unit. These guys were being stitched up. There's blood everywhere. And um, these guys are going through panes of glass and everything imaginable. And, you know, for for nothing paydays, you know, minuscule paydays, you know, so a lot of... And Darren always leans dark anyway. If you see Requiem for a Dream or, you know, any of his other movies, you know, he's not a rom-com guy. He (laughs) always leans dark. yeah. And and, this is this is what he wanted to put out
1: there. Yeah. And I think, you know, it it rings true. Like you said, there are many people who have had that experience. I mean, certainly not everybody, but there are people and, and even people watching the movie can sort of if you're a longtime fan, you can piece together in your head some people that you would imagine that it's based on because that has been the experience for some. And I know, you know, I remember even hearing a story from. Uh, a previous guest I've had on here, Howard Baum, the photographer, Howard Baum, who told a story about being with Terry Funk and hearing him talk about the movie. And he also felt uncomfortable with it and had to be almost like because c- I think he he was almost taking it like it was a depiction of his own life in a weird way. And, and he was taking it to heart and he had to be reassured, like, that's not you up there, Terry. You know, that's not your life. That's not you. But but I think in a way that's almost a weird compliment for this movie that it reached inside some of these guys and it almost made them defensive to say, well, okay, this is a little too real for me now. This I is mean, this let
0: me, is let me just say something that people may not be aware of. A lot of our heroes from the pre-Hokomania era, headliners never broke a hundred grand. Right. So Vince McMahon Senior, Sr. Who's did business on a handshake and was honorable and kept to his word for the most part. Um, he didn't spread that money around, you know you know. Um, for, for guys who headline up and down major arenas, the same arenas that an Elton John, Rod Stewart, Nick Jagger, Paul McCartney, etc., headline, believe me, they got more than a couple of thousand bucks. To headline that arena you know unlike bruno's opponents or back opponents these guys did not break a hundred grand so for the fans to do the they pissed away fortunes on wine women and song some did many never did many never made the money to piss away so you know you have to understand that i know guys and i'm not going to name names i know guys who headlined Madison Square Garden, who ended up pushing a broom. Mm -hmm. Okay? Ended up pushing a broom. One name I'll give because he's gone and it doesn't matter at this point. Mr. Fuji was ripping tickets in a movie theater. That's right. Okay? That's right. Brian's confirming. Yeah. Here's a guy who headlined Madison Square Garden against Pedro Morales, uh, Tanaka and Fuji against Pedro and Bruno. Headline, Madison Square Garden and every other arena in this and many other territories. He's ripping tickets in the movie theater. So it's disgraceful that these guys did not get pensions, 401Ks, health benefits, et cetera. So, you know, so there is validity to what we showed in The Wrestler. It's not an overall statement. Nikolai Volkoff was a dear friend of mine. He he had every penny he ever made. He had a farm. He you know he did great. Terry Funk did great.
1: Yes. You know, he did.
0: Bret Hart did great. Plenty of guys did, but a lot of the old school guys just never made it in the first place.
1: So- Nikolai Volkov also had the one suit that he wore for about forty years. Yeah. it was it was the burgundy suit with the yellow pinstripes that that I think he he got a lot of mileage out of that but but yeah a lot of guys uh like you said never even had the chance to squander the money because it never came their way and and look um it's a dark movie but you know when you weigh it against every other depiction of the wrestling industry that's been done um I think it's not even close you, you know what I mean if you want to see the lighter side of it you could watch every other movie that's ever been made about pro wrestling you know except for this one um i know. saw
0: i saw a very good documentary the other day for the first time it's called fake it so real i don't know if you ever heard of it saw it, right. but it's um and what attracted what attracted my attention was the great roger ebert one of the great film critics of all time Gave it three and a half stars. And I'm like, wait a second. This is Roger Ebert. He knows what he's talking about. And I watched it and it was really heartfelt. And it's this red tag, you know, small little indie uh, in the Midwest. And none of these guys ever got famous. And it just shows they're blue collar guys. And some of them never got a dime wrestling but they love it and they're passionate about it and it's their art. And it, that really rang true. It's called fake. It's so real. It's, mm. it's an excellent documentary. And uh, I recently saw another documentary on Mike Pappas, the old WWWF. Um, uh, he was very tiny. He was five seven, one seventy five. 175 back when they were all super heavyweights. And, yeah. Yeah. So there's a documentary on him called the flying Greek and, he said when he was wrestling for Nick Gulas, sometimes he didn't eat for three days. That's how bad the payoffs were. He was Man. actually starving and literally starving. So, you know, there, there's some other depiction. You know, we did 350 days, which rings true also. You know, some of these guys were on the road 350 days a year. And uh, it wasn't all glamorous either. So, uh, but th- but those are documentaries. As far as a fictional movie, I agree that you know the wrestler is kind of you know
1: yeah, because people don't well, the bottom line, and and you know, to sum it up, people don't take wrestling seriously, especially outside of the wrestling world. So they're not willing to do that, and so it's hard to sell a movie like that because. People just think of it as fun and silly and goofy and they don't really think about the human side. Like I think one of the reasons why so many crimes within the business get ignored and, and all the you know the epidemic of the deaths that were happening, which thank God have slowed down, is because no one took it seriously enough. It's almost like, well, they're just wrestlers, they're not actually human beings, you know. It,
0: it, I I had a friend's wife actually say that to me. She said, "One of my friends died." And she says she said to her husband, I, over, I overheard her on the phone. she said, "You're getting upset over some wrestler, like, like it's a cartoon character,? Right. Like this person didn't have family. And, you know. So part of that is they're presented as cartoons on TV, and the average person sees them like it's Batman, Superman, Spider-Man and whatnot. And um, they don't see them as real human beings. But I've had so many friends in this business. One of the guys we worked with on The Wrestler was Larry Sweeney, who hung himself. Right. Larry Sweeney from Ring of... I I would spend all day talking to this guy. He was a school teacher. He was a substitute teacher when he wasn't wrestling. And a brilliant guy, great performer, charismatic... Was he was in the wrong era. If if he had been in an early era, he would have been Bobby Heenan or Lou Albano. He came too late. Yeah. Heel managers were out of vogue The guy hung himself. And it it was really, really disturbing because this this guy was a sharp guy and talented and a good 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 human being.
1: And you mentioned Fuji before and the you know um tearing tickets at a movie theater. The reason I confirmed that is because I remember that, and, and I, I've told this story before, but this was something that turned my stomach at the time, and so I say it again every chance I get so people don't forget this happened. But when I was working at WWE Magazine towards the end, they brought in a bunch of people that were not really wrestling people. You know, they were New York Magazine people, and the re- all they knew of wrestling, like you're saying, is Hulk Hogan, WrestleMania, that whole era, rock and wrestling, all that stuff. That's what they knew. Coco Beware, all that. And um, they found out that story. I, I forget how they found it out. Somebody told them. They thought it was the funniest goddamn thing they ever heard in their life to the point where, because they, they knew Mr. Fuji. You know, he was in the cartoon to the point where they created a column in the magazine. And let me tell you something. I protested this strongly. Um, they created a column that was purported to, purported to be Mr. Fuji's movie reviews. And of course, he had nothing to do with it. They would ghostwrite it in like this Confucius fortune cookie kind of you know language, as Mister Fuji reviewing all the newest movies from his box office at the movie theater where he worked. And I, I what you're saying was what I was saying. This is a man who had a, has a family. I mean, you know, I, I, in certain circles, he wasn't even the most popular guy in the business. But all that aside. This is a man with a family, with a life, a wife, you know, fallen on hard times, whatever the case may be.
0: He's in a and wheelchair at the end.
1: He's a human. He's a human. And you're laughing at his misfortune because you just think it's amusing and funny because you don't think because you think he's a cartoon character. And, of course, this made me very unpopular in The Office. <laughs>
0: I, I I have one question for you that's always bothered me about the w w e publications okay who, who are the guys who are the guys who come up with the um like top fifty polls where like like, killer kowalski is number 50 of the greatest heels and the miz is like number 16 i know Who comes up with those who okays that
1: yeah a lot of that stuff would be on the website even more than in the magazines but we did do it in the magazines and it's a fight it's a struggle because as you could imagine it's a company publication so they don't want to make it look like their current stars are not that good or are inferior to the stars of the past so Certain things were forced on us. That's a reality. You you did have a certain segment of people there who were very young or didn't know a lot about the history of wrestling. There was that. But there were also people like me who sometimes I would sit there and go, well, we're making a list of the greatest WWF you know, cha- champions of all time. How do we not have Bruno San Martino yeah, as yeah, number yeah. one? Come on. And they would say, absolutely not. Yeah. You know, You're lucky we're even letting you put him on the list at all because this was before he reconciled you know i would fight those battles but there's only so far you could go you're working for a company magazine you've got a you eventually have to hit a brick wall sadly but i was just as aware of it as you at the time of that kind of
0: like kowalski's 50 he should be in anybody's top five
1: i know i know well and a lot of times things would get shot down i remember we did a magazine called Uh, the top top 50 WWE superstars of all time, or maybe it was top 100. And we had the entire thing blown up and and started over because they gave it to Vince McMahon to to approve. Big mistake. And what he wanted to do was he was taking out all these people we thought were worthy. In his mind, the people he wanted that were valuable to him, even from the past, were people that had made him money. That's where his priority was. So you had to have you know, honky tonk man or bushwhackers, great talent. But what I'm, I'm saying is his point of view was why is this person in this magazine? He never drew a dime. He never made money for us. Well, why is he here? He, you know, this kind of thing. And so we were fighting against that mentality, obviously, but Interesting, um, Evan. This hour plus has flown by. I know I'm taking up a lot of your time. We've gone a little bit over the hour I promised it would be. So as long as
0: you need me, no problem. This
1: is great, and you know, like you said, we didn't even get too much to talk about 350 days. So when I have you back, we'll do that. But this has been an absolute pleasure, and I can't thank you enough for just taking the time out of your schedule to to talk about the old stuff with me. Thank oh, you.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. It was fun and. Uh... It's great reminiscing, and uh, even though some of it's painful, a lot of loss in this industry
1: yeah and 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 before we go if, if if you wanted to let people know the best place to find you uh what would you where would you direct people currently?
0: Um, I'm seeing a senior editor of pro wrestling stories um on Facebook. I have a uh, Evan Ginsburg's old school wrestling memories page um Twitter facebook you know
1: i'm not hard to find yes oh there you go okay well people will be finding you this has been great like i always knew it would be when i started this you were one of the first people i wanted to try to get so i'm glad that we finally got around to doing this thank you Evan. so so very much
0: thank
1: you thank you there you have it folks my conversation with Evan Ginsberg. I always love talking to Evan because he is not afraid to share his opinions. He's not afraid to be opinionated, but also always makes sense, always really has a terrific perspective. And like the rest of us uh, uh, New Yorkers, not afraid to share the way that he feels about things. And uh, I love conversations like that. I think Evan's a great guy. And uh, I always love hearing what he has to say about the business. Um, and so um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I enjoyed talking to Evan. I always do. And um, I have some great ones coming up in the weeks to come. So keep listening, because next week on Shut Up and Wrestle, my guest is going to be Carrie Williams, Carrie Williams, who uh, whose work you most likely have seen over the years on slam wrestling. And uh, she's written a lot of other stuff about wrestling over the years. She's been writing about wrestling for a while now. And she also was a very close dear friend of Larry Mattisick in the later years of Larry's life. Of course, Larry Mattisick, one of the leading lights of St. Louis wrestling and the inheritor to the legacy of Sam Mushnick, of course. So uh, Carrie and I had some interesting things to talk about, which I'll share next week. Also, in the weeks to come, I've mentioned Greg Oliver. Of course, I did an interview with Greg Oliver. I've been saving it and sitting on it. Uh, he was recently a guest on The Mothership with Brian Last. So I kind of want to give that room to breathe a little bit, and I'll be. but I'll be sharing the Greg Oliver conversation soon. I've also got one coming up with Scott Teal, the great Scott Teal of Crowbar Press, on the way as another future guest. Um, I have conversations lined up with, A couple of other people, which I'll share with you now, one of them being Tom Burke, of course, one of the most beloved old school wrestling fans and collectors that there is in existence. Tom Burke, such a cool guy. He's coming up in the weeks to come. Also, Ross Hart of the Hart Wrestling family and dynasty. One of the Hart boys will be a guest on Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come. Haven't done that conversation yet, but will be soon. So keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. And how are you listening? Well, we're, uh, we have our website, suawpod.com. You can find it on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. And, you know, of course, we also have a Facebook group now, which I've mentioned before. So if you want to talk about the show, talk about the guests, uh, I share content related to the guests and I mention uh, who's coming in the weeks to come and things like that. If you want to join that conversation, just look up Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon on Facebook. You'll find it. You'll find our group. Join the club. If you want to pick up the book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, of course, you can get it on uh, Amazon.com. It's available in digital print and um, um, audio book format. So however however you want to get it, you can get it there. I also have some uh, copies that I'm signing. If you want to buy one directly from me, of course, you can reach out to me at brianrsolomon.com at yahoo.com if you want to pick up the magazines that i write for of course at the top of the show i mentioned inside the ropes uh, magazine.com and for pro wrestling illustrated of course you can go to pwi-online.com if you're looking for me in the world of social media and on the internet On Twitter and Instagram, I can be found at Brian R. Solomon. Also on Facebook, I have my uh, writer page on there. If you look up Brian Solomon writer, uh, it's the page that has uh, the chic picture as the avatar. And you can like that page if you so desire. And of course, all those social media platforms will have a link to my official author website, which you can visit as well. So as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you to never take a ride from a three-legged camel. So long, wrestling fans.